It takes money to make money, doesn't it? There's this general belief that if you're going to start a business, you need to find the money to be able to do it. And all the podcasts talk about raising capital, venture capital, angel investors, and where do you find the money to get going? And this general belief that it takes money to make money traps people from ever getting going. This episode is designed to free you. So welcome to the Rebel Entrepreneur Podcast. This is episode two, all about how to build a business with no money. And actually, there is a saying out there in the general public that it takes money to make money. And that's repeated so many times at our courses. And I hear people saying, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And before I can do anything, I need money. And it seems to trap people that belief. That's what we're going to talk about today is do you actually need money first? Do you need to borrow money? Do you need a loan? Do you need to get money first? Or can you get going without money? And to help me break this down and to work out how to launch businesses with no cash, I've got Katie Coombs and Sean McHugh. Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. Lovely to see you and hear you. I can see you and hear you. <laughs> it's a double bonus. Uh, Absolutely. Sean, Sean, welcome to the show as well. Good morning, Alan, or good afternoon, Alan and Casey. I love both of you. <laughs> I love you too. I've been really looking forward to this. Uh, Sean and Casey both have uh, wildly varying backgrounds and have been presenters and trainers at the Pop-Up Business School for some time now. So they've both been helping the Pop-Up Business School travel around the world and teach people how to build businesses with no money, as well as their own experiences from this. So I thought let's start. Sean, you've been actually doing some research as to where this saying it takes money to make money comes from, haven't you? Yes. Um, it was always something that I think people just take for face value and have always just repeated because they heard it from somebody else. So I decided, I was like, where does this actually come from? So I got on the the interwebs and started researching a bit and what I found was that the saying was you, you have to spend money to make money actually came from a Roman playwright, a comedic Roman playwright named Titus Machias Plautus. I probably didn't do that correctly, but it was around 180 BC when he lived. And he wrote that line as a joke. <laughs> and if you think about it, it does sound like a joke because spending money is the exact opposite of making money. And without people knowing the origin of this, this is just something we take as law and repeat it. And then people just think how that is where the origin of that was meant to make people laugh. It's really interesting how this stuff gets coded into society, into beliefs, and then repeated by people. And there's actually so many of these sayings that get repeated that we don't actually know where they come from, whether they're factually correct, whether they're statistically proven, or whether they're just written by a comedian a thousand plus years ago. There is, um, there's another line as well, which I um, used to say a lot, which is great minds think alike. I, say, I used to say that all the time. And actually, great minds don't think alike. Great minds think new things and different things and new ways to do things. Not alike. But again, for years, I just said that. Yes, there's another one that uh, my mum used to say to me, money doesn't grow on trees. And then I realised that money was made of paper and it literally grows in trees. That's where it comes from. Absolutely. <laughs> and I find it fascinating that these sayings 
trap us from ever actually getting out there and doing things. And they're just sayings that are repeated to us by teachers, people at school, parents, people we trust. They're sayings that get repeated and then we believe them. And that can then trap you from having a go. These simple sayings, they become rules Um. and they become laws. And if I think about it, lives are, are, are ruined and lives are limited by these kind of catchy, easy to remember things that people say to us and we just don't question them. And for years, I didn't question you need money to make money. I didn't question it. I just took that as, oh, yeah, sounds, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. And so therefore, I didn't think I could start a business. I had a situation in a class, a pop-up business school class in Bristol in the UK. And a lot of people in the class were giving me these type of quotes. You have to do this to do this and you have to do that to do that. And they were holding pretty firm to it. So there happened to be an umbrella in the room and I picked it up and I opened it and the whole class went crazy. And why do you guys think they did? Because that's bad luck. You're going to die. Things are going to go wrong. The world will burn down. The zombie apocalypse will arrive. Yeah. And then I asked them, well, why is that? And I said, per who, based on what? And nobody could give me the story or the origin of why opening an umbrella inside a room was dangerous, but yet they all believed it. So I think that's very similar to a lot of these sayings. You know, I said, look, I'm going to go find a black cat. I'm going to let it walk across my path. I'm going to set up a ladder. I'm going to walk underneath that. And we do get stuck <laughs> in these. It, it is, but you believe that that is how it is just because people repeat it. And boy, that can get you in a bad state of mind. And boy, you're going to follow rules that don't actually exist unless you decide they exist. So I I completely agree. I always ask per who based on what. I think that maybe some of those things come from childhood. You know, when your parents tell you stuff and when we're young, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was young, anything my parents said before, obviously I got to a teenager, then everything they said was wrong. But before that point, everything they said, I just thought was true. I thought that's the way the world is. So if they said it, it's a truth. And again, they would say things like that. Oh, don't put the umbrella up in the house because it's bad luck. Oh, God, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, mum. It's like, why? So that, that all comes, I think, from the conditioning from when we're very young. Yeah. Very young. Casey, how was, how was money treated in your house or business treated in your house? Was it a positive thing or was it a thing to be aware of? Or is it risky well, or dangerous? So when I was a kid, my parents um, both worked. And they had their own bank accounts. They never had a joint bank account. So I think that's a kind of, I mean, we're talking, it was 1970s. And they used to do their, they used to borrow money off each other and write it in a little book and then oh, pay wow. each other back. <laughs> wow. So they, they knew. So it'd be like, your, your father owes me 10 pounds. And I never questioned that. And that's how they did. They had separate money and they always talked about money and they budgeted really well. They came from, they didn't have much money uh, when they met. They used to have half an egg each before going to work. That's what they used to tell us. Oh, my god! And then they did, they did really well. They did, had good careers, and they did well, and they saved well. And then my dad became an entrepreneur after he was about 60, by the time he, came, he had his own business. So money was always spoken about. And being upfront about um, how much money you had and how you budgeted it was always something that we spoke about. But they also said, don't put an umbrella up. It's bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, was that the same for you? Because that's interesting. Like for, for my house, it was always, 
like money's dangerous, money's risky. It was a scarcity mindset. You know, I was raised very comfortably middle-class white home, you know, in the United States. And I was always kind of felt like money we, we had to save and we weren't going to have enough and it was going to be taken away. Even though what I was seeing in front of my eyes and how we were living was we were okay and we were fine. So I was always spoken to in a scarcity context. And I, I think that came from my parents growing up, you know, in a much more place of poverty or a place of not having. And maybe they're, you know, my grandparents are children of the depression. So I think that was mm. kind of that mentality was passed on. And then just that's how it was to them. Although we were not in that time anymore. Alan, did you have that? Well, how was money looked at in, in your family? Well, I think it ebbed and flowed through the years. So let me give you two examples of the vast difference. I remember at maybe age six, my dad came home after making a business deal and he brought with him a suitcase full of money and told us to put all the queen's heads the right way round. And I think there was probably a hundred grand in there. And I'm six years old, sat cross-legged, putting all the queen's heads round and counting the money for him. And... I grew up in a very entrepreneurial house that was doing massive deals. And then you polarize that against 10 years later when he'd gone bankrupt and had nothing. And we were doing car boot sales to be able to raise enough money to buy food for the month. And I had a messed up childhood with beliefs about money that at some stages it was completely abundant and other stages it was the scarcest resource known to man. And that left me with a lot of mess to work through over the next years to come up with my own mindset and beliefs around money. And actually, I thought money was an evil thing for many years because of what it did to my family. And then I realized it wasn't the money. The money's an inanimate object. It's just a medium of exchange. It wasn't the money that messed up our family. It was something else. Yeah, I kind of had to rewire myself as well on that as it's a not a... It's not positive or negative. It's a green piece of paper. Yes. Or blue or yellow, depending on yeah. the country you're from. Uh, yes. By it, the way, a car boot for Americans, that is the trunk, car trunk. Yes. It's where you put all your belongings from home in the trunk of the car, <laughs> drive to a field, and fairly desperate people huddle around your car and buy it for hardly anything. Uh, then you get to spend the money on food. So look, let's get on to this because I think this is really interesting how these things get written into culture where beliefs come from but there is a standard way to start a business if you go to a business coach you go to a support service and you say I want to start a business the first thing they tell you to do is write a business plan and you write a business plan you work out who you're going to sell to what you're going to sell you work out how much money you need to borrow to get going and where you're going to spend it then you go to the bank and you get a loan and you borrow the money, you spend the money and then you start to sell. And then the classic phrase, which always gets me, is maybe you make money in year two. Now, where do you think this model came from? How, how has that got written into global law that that's the way to start a business? How did that happen? I think from my perspective, it has to be the banks. It has to come from the banks. Years ago, you know, my, my experience of uh, before I had my own business was to have a career. I'm one of those people that colored in between the lines. I followed the rules. There's still a bit of that in me now. 
Um, and I didn't like to shake things up. I wanted just to get through life. I'd do all right. I had a good career. And uh, eventually, I, maybe I'd be on the board somewhere and, and, and have a pension. And I just I'd follow the rules. And I think that in the past, when I thought of launching businesses or a friend of mine, Sarah, decided years ago that we would have a coffee shop. So we, I, you know, we researched, what do you do? You have a business plan. So we wrote a business plan. And we found um, a friend of ours was an accountant and he did all sorts of projections for us. I still no no idea what they were or what they meant. And then we stood outside, we found some premises in South Manchester and we stood outside the premises and we asked people, would you buy a coffee? Oh yeah, you would. Would you have a latte? You know, would you have a croissant? Oh yeah, I have a croissant for you. Oh, I, I like a pan au chocolat. What, is it chocolat or chocolat? Anyway, we used to ask all these questions and we, had it, we did it all. <laughs> And we worked out we'd need about forty to fifty thousand pounds. I mean, we were working out how much the sugar was in every cup of coffee. Because I've researched this and I realized that you had to have all these details because I followed the rules. And um, that's what the world said. You needed a business plan. And we had this beautiful business plan. And again, we worked out, Sarah and I, that we would have to work there for two years, over two years, seven days a week. Seven days a week, every single day, for two years, then we might be able to take some wages because we'd have to pay off the loan. We'd have to take the huge loan. So we didn't do it. So actually, following the rules, doing the business plans stopped us from starting the business. And I think it must come from the banks, because they're the people who want to lend you the money in the first place, because they make money on lending the money. What do you think, Sean? I would agree with Casey completely. It's a way to leverage the relationship right away, where you have somebody who's in a place where they're scrambling to pay back before they maybe even have made a sale. Uh, I just did a quick search for origin of business plan. And the earliest date I could see was the 1970s. I don't know if that's correct or not. But once again, this phenomenon is something that's very, very recent within our history. So back in the day when Farmer Bob wanted to sell apples to uh, his neighbor, you know, Farmer Johnson, I doubt they had a business plan to come up how to do that. It was here, I have apples. Do you want to buy them? Yes, I do. And that was it. So I think, yeah, there's a little bit of subterfuge that was put in there by money lenders to some degree. Now, I don't know that for sure, but I would kind of tend to agree with KC on that. Well, I think it's quite interesting. There's probably some other sources as well. I know that education loves business plans because they need something to mark the students by. So if they're doing an academic exercise, well, write me a business plan and we'll grade it on how good you've done. That's the only way they can see the proof. So there's that side. There's the accountants who want to see the numbers. There's solicitors that want to see the proof. There's all these different organizations that have a vested interest in seeing a business plan to start. Isn't it interesting, though, but there is actually no proof whatsoever. That's a guess or hypothesis. Um, I love business plans because they tell the future that isn't really real, or maybe it is, but probably not. It's a guess. And a lot of those guesses, as Casey said, can stop people in their tracks because that guess is either looked at as a good story or a bad story and stops people from moving forward. Yeah, our business plan that we wrote for the coffee shop, it was very um, positive. You know, everybody we asked would said, more or less everybody we asked said they would buy from us. So, we, you know, we were, we were working out that these hypothetical sales were going to happen in the future. And we, you know, so, and even with that, it still said it wasn't going to work or we had to work for two years. So it stopped us. And the idea that you can see into the future 
is an interesting one. And I think that's what the business plans try and get you to see. And of course, you can't. And businesses, well, we'll come to that, but they're, they're more kind of chaotic than that. They're a little bit messy sometimes <laughs> at the beginning. Very and um, I think with business plans, you take a step and it's like you have an idea or a vision and it's one big step to where you want to be. That's the little film or the picture you've got in your head. We had this vision of this coffee shop, you know, sort of like a, a cool little um, community Starbucks. And we thought we had to go from standing start of st- st- standing there with our clipboards asking questions to next phase was opening up this beautiful little mini coffee shop. And of course, that step was so big that we didn't actually do it. Looking back now, I can think of a million ways we could start that coffee shop. Because of the years of, of having my own business, I've learned how to start things. And I can see it. I can see it so simply, but it stopped us at the time. What exactly was the stopping point? Was it the, it's going to take us two years to make money per this business plan? Or what was the thing that was like, hey, that's the reason we can't do this? Well, at the time, Sarah had, um, she'd just given birth, so she had a baby. Her husband was at work and she wanted something to do rather than just stay at home with the baby. So it was something that she could bring the baby to work. But then we realized that, that really she'd have to bring the baby from, you know, we'd been there from 5 a.m. And by the time we'd done the whole day in this fictitious world that we'd imagined, <laughs> um, after we'd served all our customers and taken all the money, that we'd probably be in there till 8, 9 o'clock at night, cleaning, prepping. So she'd have to have her daughter, Ruby, with her the whole time. And she's like, that's not what I want. I want to go home and see my husband. I wanted a part-time, you know, she'd imagined a life for herself in this perfect coffee shop. Um, that looked like this beautiful little, you know, community Starbucks with her, her good friend and her baby. And of course, that's not what we'd written in the business plan. We'd written something that we'd need to be working ridiculously long hours with a huge loan and the stress of that loan. And we were imagining that all the money and all the time would actually be paying back the loan and the lease on the premises. So I hear stress of the loan and the idea of sitting around in the in the coffee shop and enjoying a great latte with your favorite customer as opposed to working 13 hours and not seeing our family and being exhausted and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It sounded like you wanted to go to a coffee shop rather than run a coffee shop. Exactly right, Alan. It's a bit like, I like to go to London, but I don't want to live there. You know, it's that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. <laughs> I like to visit, but I don't actually want to live that life. So it's quite interesting how this traditional way of starting a business, I had exactly the same thing. And actually, that's the genesis of the pop-up business school was my experience of going to a traditional business advisor from the UK government who told me to write a business plan. That's the genesis of the pop-up business school of searching for a different way to do it. And I still believe in most places, the business plan is taught as the first step. And I think this is compounded. And one of the reasons it gets into folklore, it becomes law, is that if you now Google, how do I start a business? Pretty much every one of the top 10 articles that come up says the first step is to write a business plan. And this then becomes compounded over the years that people think this is the way to do it. And it never becomes challenged again. And I think what I want to do and the purpose of this episode is to challenge this do you really need money to start? Do you need to use your savings? Do you need to use your redundancy money? Do you need your inheritance? Do you need to go into debt? Do you really need money to start? Or are there other ways to do it? And Casey, you had your own business for five, 15 years before you came to pop up. 
Sean had his own business for many years, producing music videos and in film. And I think it's really interesting. If you were starting a business again now, would you write a business plan and take a loan? Well, I think from what I just said, it's it's clear to me now how if, if I wanted to start a coffee shop. By the way, I don't want a coffee shop. That was a long time ago. But if I do, of course, there is, there is not, there's no way I would write a business plan. And there is absolutely no way I would take a loan or use savings. When I work at the Popper Business School on the first day, at the end of the first day, I say my objective here, if there's one thing that I can get through to you, is not to take a loan. If I have persuaded you not to take a loan or to use your savings or redundancy, then my job is done today because I potentially have changed your life massively. Because it's so important that we break down this myth that you need to borrow, you need a big chunk of cash to start a business. It's just not true. Now, look, there are some businesses that did start with a loan that have been successful. There are some businesses that do start with people use their redundancy and they become successful. I think you know, they are few and far between. I really mean that. I think some people do, and that's great and good for them. And I hope they do well. I'm not saying that, that they're, they're wrong. I'm just saying that you do not need to, and there's a difference. So when I do those day ones at Pop-Up Business School, my clear message, my focus is do not take a loan. And I would never, ever take a loan for business. Do you know, I won't take a loan for my personal life. Uh, we won't take a loan for anything anymore because debt is just so stressful so stressful yeah. you've got to be able to and I think Alan actually if I'm honest um, part of your message and working for you and with you for the past did you say I said with you and for you there so I changed it working for you to working with you yeah. <laughs> I prefer that massively my yeah my ego chipped in there and uh, is that you've taught me about paying up for things more than ever and I carry that message to everybody really don't take a loan I would speak to that same thing in case you touched on it a couple of times. The amount of stress that taking a loan and taking on debt puts on people and how they operate with that in their head is incredibly powerful. You're going to be behaving in a different way from a place of neediness, I would say, as a place of want and abundance. If you're asking people to buy a product and all you can think about is, I have to make this payment in a couple of days and I don't know where it's going to come from, that's going to emanate to people. People will feel that and they'll feel pressured and they'll feel that nervousness from you as well. And it's going to come through everything you do within your business. I think there's an inherent issue with putting yourself in that position right away. If you remove that debt and remove that loan situation, well, then you can operate from a place of freedom and a place of want, not need. And to me, that little intangible difference can help you move forward so much faster in an enjoyable way and not working from a place that goes, I have to, because I have to pay this debt back and staying up at night and worrying and so forth. And even not starting the business, I think with your coffee example of that, it was like, well, we don't want to go into debt to start this and maybe not even make money till year two. Well, if we can remove all that maybe and that stress and come from a place of enjoyment and I'm going to do this because it's something I love, not because I have to pay back money. So I would completely agree with that stress part and putting yourself in a positive way to start as opposed to, well, I got to climb this hill and I might not make it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when I was younger, I had credit card bills. And I've, you know, taken the odd car loan. And it is, it's, 
it seems like you're renting things. You're renting the money. It does never ever seems like it's your own. So I'm quite anti-debt. I love that message. So let's take that anti-debt message and let's work out how to start with no money. So the pop-up methodology teaches five ways to start with no money. Let's go through those. Let's give them to the audience. Let's come up with examples and work through them. Uh, The first one we talk about is instead of buying something, can you get it for free? Uh, And I think that's a really interesting concept and one that I never really thought about it when I was younger. Yeah. What do you think? Can you get things for free to start your business? Well, to me, it's confidence in the ask at first as well. And if you have that belief of, no, I can't get it for free, well, then you're right. And if you have the belief of, I can get that for free, well, then you're right. So coming from a place of, hey, I am going to put something out into the world that is going to help people, my product or my service is going to be good. And I need to get that out there for them, not asking from a place of, well, could I possibly have that? And then also asking, how can you provide value to the person or the business or the entity that you're asking something for free? So coming from a place of you're not begging, what you're doing is looking for something to help you put good into the world, whether that be your product or service. Just to, to follow up on that with Sean, I, there's lots of stuff out there that there is free. There is no catch because there are a number of services, especially online services, that want to give you a free version of what they've got to get you interested in their products. And there may be the next level up where they want you to start paying. So, you know, you can have a free website from, say, Weebly. There are lots of them out there, but there's Weebly, there's Wix, and there's a really good quality first version that's free, completely free. Yes, Weebly are a for-profit business and Weebly want to sell you something, but you don't actually have to buy the premium version. You can have a perfectly good website. In fact, a brilliant website for free, no money, no credit card details, and there's no catch. You just have to make sure that you don't upgrade because there's no need to. So there's lots of things. I mean, social media, um, without getting the overwhelm of social media or getting too much into it at this point, you know, Twitter's free, Instagram's free, um, LinkedIn's free, Facebook is free. Yes, there are paid for versions. Yes, there are adverts and you can boost posts and do all the other stuff. But to start, it's free. You can even have business cards virtually for free if you want business cards, because I'm not actually convinced we all need them. But um, if you want business cards for free, you can have them. I think you have to pay postage. Uh, Though recently I saw one which is uh, they pay the postage for you. They did a special offer. So it's absolutely free. So for either two two or three pounds, which for our American listeners, that's two or three pounds, you can... (laughs) (laughs) Five bucks, roughly. Is that five bucks? Maybe four. Uh, You can get free business cards. And there's loads of them do it. Moo do it, Banana do it, Vista do it. So... If you just look, I think it's the mindset of looking for the free stuff, first of all, looking for the free stuff rather than what can I buy? Yeah. What would you guys say? Because I I cross this bridge a lot with people and it becomes an interesting conversation of, well, I do have the money. I can just buy it as opposed to, well, why would I look for something for free if I have the savings, as you said, Alan, or I have the inheritance, or I have the personal money, or I have a credit card? Why would I do it for free when I can just go and buy that? Why would I put myself through the hassle? Well, I think there's two main reasons. One is by doing that, you're swapping creativity for cash. 
So instead of being creative about how you launch your business, you're just spending money. And the act of being creative and thinking about it is going to be stronger and make your business stronger. So I would challenge you to do the thinking and the creativity before you go to the cash. And I think the second thought, which is tied to that, is the learning you will get from doing this is unbelievable. If you take this list of five ways to start for free that we're going to talk to you through and treat it as a menu and then go, okay, I need a building. Number one, can I get it for free? If not, can I borrow it? If not, can I barter for it? If not, can I sell stuff to raise the money? If not, can I sell it before I create it? And you've got this list of things to do. If you treat it like that, the learning you will get when you start your business is phenomenal, which will help you to be stronger and give you a far better survival rate. This actually concept of could you get it for free came from a guy that I met many, many years ago as I was launching my business. His name was Mike Essex. And he wrote a book called How to Get Free Stuff Every Day. We've got a podcast episode planned with him coming up where we dive into how do you get free things. But as a a young man at school, he decided he wanted computer games, but he didn't have the money to buy it. So what he did was he published a website and he wrote to games manufacturers and said, if you send me the game, I'll write a review for you online and promote it for you the games manufacturers started sending him games and he was incredibly successful at getting free games. All of a sudden, he's the most popular kid at school. He's got all the latest titles. He doesn't know what to do with them. His room's filling up. So he starts to give them away. Eventually, he gets smart and starts to sell them. And I think it was over 550 games he got in that first year by creating a website, reviewing for them for free and asking directly what he wanted. And that just inspired me. And he's continued to do that ever since. So make sure you check out that episode coming up in the Rebel Entrepreneur podcast. But the first thing of how to start is, can you get it for free? Is it possible? I think you may surprise yourself. Because if you start from that mindset, is it for free? Especially if you've written a list of some of the things you need. Because, you you know, we're not talking about having a business plan here. But you may think, uh, well, I need some equipment or I need a room or I need a laptop or I need a camera, whatever it is. You may have written that down. And my instinct, or it used to be, would be write a figure next to that of how much I was going to spend on that. Mm. But if you start from the mindset that I don't want to spend anything on that. So you can start to search for it with the view that you're not going to buy it, you're not going to spend. So I go on, um, in in the UK, we have Gumtree and FreeCycle. So if you go on these websites, this is people giving stuff away. If I go on those websites now, and I I do this before a pop-up business school, I go whenever, whichever area we're in, in the UK, um, or I'm in the UK, I'll have a look at what's for free. And you can find laptops, you can find computers, you can find desks, you can find wardrobe, you can find all sorts of things. And people just want somebody to come and get it because they don't want it anymore. So you don't even have to pay. Um, You may need to convince somebody to give you a lift in a car or a van. But, you know, we know people. You look look to your network, look to your friends and see you can lend you a van or uh, run you around. But there's all sorts of stuff available for free. And I think it is definitely a mindset thing that's about approaching it with the attitude is I am not going to spend any money on this. I'm Mm -hmm. determined to do it in zero cash. 
I agree. And I think looking at it as kind of taking the seriousness of it and taking the, the shame or the idea out of it and making it more of a game and say, well, ooh, what could I get for free? Or how many things, how far can I get without spending any money? And also looking at it from another point of view, Casey just made a great point right there of a lot of people just want stuff out of their house or out of their garage. To them, it's something that is a pain or I don't want to deal with. And if you can remove that thing and use it in a great way, well, then you're actually doing them a favor that they probably would have had to pay for otherwise, if it's a larger item or something like that. So you're looking at it as, hey, I'm taking something that somebody else does not want or really wants to get rid of and using it in a purposeful way. Uh, so having that mental attitude of, hey, I'm not begging, it's I'm looking for things that I can use in a way that is going to help other people as opposed to something that somebody just wants to get rid of. So I think mindset is very important in when you are asking for free and not just you know, leveraging the ask as well. Like we had noted a little bit earlier, can you ask for free on Facebook? Can you ask for free, you know, on Craigslist, which is the equivalent of Gumtree in the UK, FreeCycle and so forth like that. Use the internet to ask, you know, not just to your friends and so forth and so on. You might be able to provide somebody a service that they need to get rid of the thing that you need. I love that. And actually, let's use that to bring us on to number two. So number one is, can you get it for free? We've had loads of suggestions of different ways you can do it there. If you can't get it for free, can you borrow it? And Sean just said about posting on social media. Does anyone have a whatever it is? Can I borrow one? So um, a friend of mine, uh, Amy, has a, a hairdresser's. But I met Amy, what, uh, 12 years ago. Uh, she was a hairdresser in Tony and Guy. And she said to me that she was going to be, um, she's going to have her own hair salon. So the first thing she was going to do was leave Tony and Guy. Tony and Guy, for those who don't know, is a big chain of, of hairdressers. She was going to leave and she was going to become a mobile hairdresser. But remember that her, her idea here, the thing that's running in her head, is a chain of hairdressers eventually uh, and her own hair salon. So the first thing she does is goes, she goes uh, mobile. We all know lots of mobile hairdressers who go around to people's houses and do it. She then uh, has her first child and she can't go mobile anymore. So she needs to do the hairdressing from home. So I'm still a, a client of hers and I had to go around to her house to have my hair cut, as does lots of other clients. And she built that from home. And then she had a second child. And so she's got two children. Uh, she's a single mother now and she's working from home. And she's doing well. She does really well. And then she said to me one day, I can't work from home anymore. It's, I never go out. All I do is look after the kids and cut hair. So I've decided that I'm going to get uh, my own hairdressers, but I, she didn't have any money. So she said to me, I've seen a nail bar. So this is a little shop down the road that does people's nails, women's nails mainly. And they've got what's called a backwash in there. So it used to be a hairdresser's. So backwash is where you lean back and they wash your hair for those who wonder what that is. She said, they've got one in the back and I'm going to go in there and ask if I can be a pop-up in their nail bar. I'm going to get one of those banners that are about 40 quid that you, you, you raise from the floor with my name on, Amy Sharp. And I'm going to have a pop-up hairdresser and I'm going to ask. And she, she asked. She asked if she could borrow space. And she's, the, the deal she did was that she would bring in customers because I don't think the snail bar was doing that well. But Amy has always done really well, always had lots of um, good, loyal customers. And so she, what she did was she was going to bring people into the nail bar and she was going to cut their hair. So she didn't actually have to pay for the space. She brought that many people in. The nail bar started to do really well. 
So she managed to start a hairdresser's with a pop-up sign, a 40 pounds pop-up sign in a nail bar. She borrowed the space. She borrowed the space. And I think that it's just a mindset. It's about your attitude, how you approach these things. Look, eventually she, she did really well there and she moved out of the nail bar and she saved her money and she does have her own hairdressers now. And she's got five stylists working for her. And she started out her business by going mobile and then doing it in the spare room and then popping up in a, in a nail salon. And now she has her own salon. She could and is planning to open her second within the next year. So it just shows you that borrowing things, not necessarily, it may be a piece of equipment, but it actually might be space. It might be somebody else's premises. I absolutely love that example. And that is that story boils down the pop-up methodology to AT. How can you start with what you've got, where you are straight away, start to earn money, borrow space, get going. That's fantastic. And actually, we've got a coming up episode, which I won't blow the story, but we have an entrepreneur, uh, a pair of them, actually, Katie and Andrew, who built an escape room by originally borrowing the space. So we're going to dive into how do you borrow spaces? How do you get somewhere to start far more in the future? But there's actually so many different things and examples of what you can borrow. And I'm sure, Sean, with your experience of borrowing things in the past, you've borrowed a few weird and wonderful things, have you? I have. Um, before I get into one of those, I just want to note on, and I think it's an excellent example of what Casey was speaking with her friend, Amy. Not only did she get a space for free, but she provided a massive amount of value from the people that she was borrowing that space from. She took a business that was very complimentary to hers, a nail bar, and people came in, got their haircut, and then I'm guessing also got their nails done. So if you can set up something for, with a borrow that the value is going both ways, that is going to be a win every time. Secondarily on that, let's say she did set up that station in there, and for some reason she did not like working out of there, or it didn't work out. For whatever reason may that may be, she saved herself the pain and the money of going and finding a place to rent and all the costs it takes to set that up and build out a space. Instead of doing that, she tested it out by borrowing and was not under the pressure of a lease or a loan or so forth. So I love looking for those type of situations and borrows where value goes to both people as well. She helped grow a nail business and she helped grow her own. And I think those people who she came in loved her and probably if they had another nail shop would allow her to go in there as well. But Value going both ways is important in all of these situations as we're talking about. You can do that with for free. You can do that with borrow. You can do it with barter. You can do it with sell your value before you create it and then also selling your own stuff. Something that I used to do in my film production business was I was very good about breaking down shooting schedules, meaning what was needed for, let's say, a music video commercial, what type of equipment went into that, what type of planning, what type of budget, who the people were needed crew-wise, who the people were needed cast-wise, what time of time these things would take, what order to do them in. And that was something that was a very valuable skill. When I was working on my own projects, I needed cameras, I needed lights, I needed different type of equipment. And 
I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but this was when things were shot on 35 millimeter film before things got into digital. And this was very, very expensive to do. Camera rental could be anywhere from $3,000 to $5,000 a day. And I did not have that money to do that. But I did have the relationships with people within the film industry that had those that I could trade my services for. This kind of leads more into a barter situation, but I could borrow their camera and for them letting me borrow that, I could then give them my skills for when they were working on their productions and their films to set up schedules and what they needed and budgets and so forth. And it was a great way to trade off without having that ability asked borrow their stuff and provide my skills and barter to help them make their, their own productions. There is no way I could have done my own films, videos, and commercials without that ability to borrow and barter. Um, it was just too expensive and there was no way I was going to take out a loan to do that. I love that, Sean. And that does actually bring us very neatly to number three, which is bartering, which actually before money really existed, we would just swap things. So if you had chickens, you'd swap them for some apples and then you'd swap them for vegetables. And there was no medium of exchange, which was money in the middle. And bartering is just the concept that you take the skills or service you have and swap them for what you need. So if you don't have money, there is always something that you can offer that the other person would be interested in other than straight cash. And it's about that exchange of value that Sean's talking about. I can help you get what you want and you can help me get what I want. And bartering is about identifying what you need finding someone who's got it and then offering them something in return. And one of the examples we give of that at the pop-up business school is actually Henry who works for us. Everyone at the pop-up business school works from home. None of us have offices except for Henry. He seems to have his own beautiful glass office. It has glass elevators. He has nice coffee, attractive people swanning around. And to be honest, I'm quite jealous because I started this business. If anyone should have an office, it should be me, not Henry. But what he did was he found a guy with an office. He actually came into the local pub where Henry operated. Henry made friends with him. They started chatting and Henry said, well, I don't particularly like working from home every day. Sometimes I like to get out. Do you have a spare desk that I can borrow every now and again? And the guy looked at him and said, why would I lend you a desk? Henry said, well, I have skills. I'm great at building websites. I'm good on social media. I could swap that. And you could see the other guy's eyes light up. And he said, well, I'm actually launching a new business. I need a website. If you build me a website, I'll let you use my office when you want to. And Henry swapped the skills he had for a office. He bartered for it. And what do you think he built the website on? Weebly, just like KC said. And so he built a free website, handed it over and got use of a fantastic office for it. And that's the concept of bartering. I love that um, that uh, example of Henry, because I can imagine him doing that. I don't know if anyone's met Henry. But um, I just wanted to say that as you're talking, I'm thinking of things that I wasn't even aware of that actually I am bartering for. And one of them is I have a personal trainer and he is £45 an hour is Imran. 45 English pounds an hour. Now, I think that's a lot of money. It's like 60 bucks. A lot of money. I know, 60 bucks. Anyway, I don't pay him. I 
don't pay him anything. He does it for free for me. The reason is that when we first started talking and I got introduced to him and then I thought, he seems like a nice chap. He can watch me while I cheat on my reps. And we talked about business and he asked me what I did. And I told him that I help people start businesses and run their own business. And as we got chatting, he's got ambition and he wants a bigger company. He wants to earn more money. He's, his wife and him wants to have a baby and he wants to increase his income. So we agreed that I would be his business mentor and he would be my personal trainer. So one hour a week, he shouts at me while I call him names and swear at him. And that's when we're in the gym. And one hour a week, I sit in a coffee shop with him and convince him that he can do it. And he should go on Facebook and make videos, which he does. So that little barter means that I get a free personal trainer and he moves his business forward. There's, there's all sorts of things. You'll look, you'll look in your life that you're doing this already, but you may not think it's so formal. I talked about Amy, our hairdresser. Lynn's my wife, is her personal mentor. We, none of us now pay for our hair. We all have, uh, including our two children, all have our hair cut by Amy and coloured for free. But of course, it's not for free because Lindsay is her business mentor. So she allocates a certain amount of time every week to, to help Amy. So there's lots you can do. Lots you can do. And again, it's just thinking about what have you got? What can you give? And how can you help people? Who needs what you've got? And have they got something that you need too? But it goes back to that list of things that you need. Um, do you need some help with your accounts? Do you need some help with your social media? Do you need a certain machine? Do you need some space? What are those things? And what have you got? What are your talents? Are you good at marketing? Are you a good baker? Can you do stuff? Can you garden? What are the things you've got? Those real basic, when I say basic, you know, it can be a skill, the sort of things that other people don't want to do, but you can do for them. I think also, too, a lot of times I've seen this in pop-up business school classes and just talking to other individuals as well. I don't have anything to barter. I'm not good at this or I don't have anything to trade. It doesn't always have to be direct. So asking people what they need, if they have a skill or a service or a product or a machine that you need, you need to know what they want as well and saying, hey, for example, like I need a personal trainer. And then you ask the personal trainer, well, what is it that you need? And he says, well, I want to grow my business. Well, look at that. How about that? I can help you with that. But let's say you couldn't help him with your business. Do you know somebody that could help them with his business? And can you put them together? That skill is also valuable as well, because you might not always have something to barter that's valuable to the other person unless you ask what that is. Now, can you connect them to somebody else that has that? They will be very thankful and reward you for that as well. So what I would ask people to do is do not back yourself into a corner saying, well, I don't have what they need or they don't want to work with me. You need to ask them what it is you can do to help them, and that will start you down that path. One way or another, you will find some way you can provide value. I love that, Sean. Yeah, I agree. Asking questions. I think this goes through to asking for things for free and asking if you can borrow stuff and also bartering. It means that you've got to go out there and, and speak and connect with other human beings and ask them things. And sometimes they may say no, and they may not be very open to you asking, especially, um, I don't know if it's a British thing or an English thing, but sometimes we don't want to ask for things. We don't want to ask for help. Uh, we don't want to be seen to be desperate. And I think that it's changing your mindset around that and realizing you're starting a business and you're looking at this from starting it for free. So you need to get as much as you can for free. It doesn't mean that you're desperate 
or needy or any of those weird sort of labels you want to give to mm. it. It's just looking to how to move your life forward without gambling a lots of cash. And so you may ask and they may say no. And that's kind of all right because some people say no. It doesn't mean they hate you. It doesn't mean the next person is going to say no. It just means what that person did. Yeah. Case, I think you're absolutely right. In front of all of these five ways to start a business, I think you can always start with an ask of how you can be of service or what value you can provide. Not coming from a place of you being needy, but saying, hey, what can I do to help you get going on this path? And then people will naturally want to work together with you. Are It's law of reciprocity. You know, if you're providing value to folks and you're helping them get to where they want and you're helping them with that, that's also going to feel good and they're going to want to work with you or refer you to somebody that they know that can get what you need, but you would not know unless you ask that. So I really want to reiterate, like, come from a place of confidence, come from a place of how can I help this person? And it will come back to you. Value is always followed by money. You give value, money will follow. Just building on something that Casey said as well, one of the things I've come to realize in my 40s is that asking for help is not actually a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. And if you go and say to people, if I came to KC and said, look, I'm trying to make a decision. Can you help me? How would that make you feel, Katie? I would be pleased that you thought of me as somebody that you could ask who you wanted my opinion. So it would make me feel good, to be honest. Make me feel good. And that's exactly what I've discovered is if you go and ask for help, people feel flattered that you've come to them. And I think asking for help shows that you're confident enough in yourself to be able to do that. And so I see asking for help as a sign of strength, not weakness. So that's number three. What can you barter for? There's a million more examples, which we can come back to another time. Uh, but let's move on to number four, which is sell stuff. Now, this point originally came from the pop-up business school we ran in South Kilburn about six or seven years ago. And there was a guy sat in the front row. He was homeless at the time. And he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag with an iPad with a cracked screen. That was his entire possessions. And we're saying to him, you can start a business for free. And he's saying, well, I've got nothing. So we said, well, what can you sell? And he said, well, I, I literally have nothing. I am homeless. And we started to brainstorm with him. What could you sell? And it turns out he has a friend with a garage full of stuff, but with no time to sell it. So they did a deal whereby if he helped the friend, then he would split the profits of selling off the stuff and help him clear his garage. And he's adding value to the friend by helping him clear, tidy and get rid of stuff. And they're both benefiting from it. And that money was then what was used to start the business. So instead of starting with debt, he started with selling something, even if it wasn't selling the product, it was just selling what you've got. And I find it incredible the amount of stuff people have lying in their houses. I speak of this from personal experience. Last summer, I was clearing out my house and uh, I was selling off what was in my spare room. It was old board games, old mobile phones, old all sorts of stuff. I made about a thousand pounds selling this stuff in my spare room and I couldn't believe it. So if you don't have any money, uh, maybe you should have a look around the house for what's lying around that you could possibly turn into cash to help you get going. 
I think that's a great example, Alan, here too, because a lot of people, when they're saying, well, what are you short on? It's usually two main things. It's, well, time or money. So if you're in a situation like that gentleman um, with the cracked iPad, he has a valuable asset, which is time. And that person that he sold their stuff for maybe did not have that time. So he added a large amount of value for somebody who would not have sold whatever that was that he had. It would just sat there. He got it out of his house. He made some money and that person provided that value to him while creating cash to start his own business as well. Just to um, build on that point about selling stuff, I think that some of the conversations I've had with people who attend the pop-up business school, there's a certain amount of effort to sell things. It can be a little bit faffy. I don't know if if our American friends can understand the word faffy, but a bit of a hassle is what I would say. You have to maybe set up an eBay account or um, you then have to photograph it. I mean, these are really hard things, are they? Not really. Uh, You have to photograph it. You have to list it. And so you have to take some effort here. You have to do some stuff. And the other thing is, if you go into a car boot sale, we talked about car boot sales. So after um, um, over the 15 years, trunk sale, sorry, uh, of having our own business, Lindsay and I had acquired quite a lot of stuff. We bought a lot of stuff. And when we sold our business, we sold that and raised some cash. And we also sold a lot of stuff. And we look at our wardrobes and realize, and I think a lot of people can do this, that there's 80% of your clothes you don't tend to wear. You tend to wear just 20% of the clothes that you own. So we sold the other 80%. And some things went on eBay and we got maybe two or three quid for them or a pound for them. But it all adds up. These small amounts add up. And car boot sales as well. I mean, not only if you approach this from, oh, my God, I've got to do a car boot sale. What a pain. Then it probably will be really miserable and it would be a pain. If you start it from, I'm going to do a car boot sale and sell all that rubbish from the attic and make some cash, then actually you may surprise yourself because car boot sales are brilliant fun. You may have to get up at four o'clock in the morning. The last one I did was with my daughter. I took my daughter, Kitty, who was very excited to get up at four o'clock in the morning. And we actually had our lunch at 9 a.m. That's how early we got up. So we took some sandwiches, we took a packed lunch, and we ate our lunch at nine o'clock. And we sold loads of stuff. Um, And we gave a fair amount of it away, but we got it out of our house and raised some money. So it feels good and it can be quite fun. But the thing is, is not to buy any other rubbish when you're there. Those of you who've been to a car boot sale, trunk sale, know that there is a real, real thing about buying rubbish when you're there because everybody's selling their stuff. But yeah, make the effort and see this as part of your business. This is part of starting a business is raising the cash. And if that means selling stuff, then make the effort. Go for it. Be, um, I'm not sure if I can swear, but be asked is the thing. Do it because the, um, the payoff from it is amazing. One final example on sell your stuff actually came from the pop-up business school we ran in Birmingham. There was a lady called Escher. And she wanted to start a mobile beautician business. She needed one of those fold out tables that people can lay on with the hole for the head. You can tell I'm into mobile beautician businesses. I use them all the time. But she needed one of those tables. Thank you, the massage table. And she needed about £150 for it. And that was her stumbling block, about 200 bucks to buy the table. That was her stumbling block to start up. So while she was there, we said, what can you sell? And she said, well, in my spare room, I have a running machine that I don't use. I have a treadmill. I used it once. Now it's just a glorified clothes horse. 
so we got it on eBay. We sold it. We raised nearly all of the money to buy the table. We were able to find the extra cash. She got going that week and she got start. And I think that's the bit is, can you just, if you need 50 quid to buy something, if you want to start a podcast and you want to buy a microphone for 50 or 60 pounds, can you just sell some stuff around the house to be able to generate the cash and get going quickly? That's all this point is. So let's move on to the most important of this entire podcast. We've obviously saved for the best for last, and it is sell your value before you create it. Sell your value before you create it. Uh, Sean, Casey, what does that actually mean? Because it's a bit of a confusing sentence. Well, to me, the words sell your value before you create it confuse me a little bit, if I'm really honest. I'm kind of quite a basic person, and I find it as a confusing phrase. So to me, it's, there's a little bit of get the money up front in some ways. So before you start spending, get the money in. Get the cash in your hand before you part with it. It's as simple as that. And again, it's how you look at how you're going to start your business. So years ago in 2003, Lindsay, who's my wife, who we started a business together, but we did it without even realizing we were starting a business. It's a long story and I can bore you all later with it. But it basically went like this. Uh, Lindsay's quite entrepreneurial. I wasn't. And she used to face paint. She had a side hustle where she face painted at weekends. And I just used to spend money at weekends. And she was a face painter. And um, when I was at uh, one weekend, she went off to a place called Alton Towers, which is a kind of a theme park where she would be paid on a Saturday to paint the faces of the kids. I went to see Manchester City Football Club play uh, and I would spend money because that's what I kind of did at those. That lived in soccer. Those <laughs> oh, yeah. Football, soccer. Um, and um, on this particular weekend, when she went off to earn money and I went off to spend money, I noticed at Man City, Manchester City, that the kids had been painting their own faces. So those kids running around and they were wearing the colours and they painted their own faces and they looked ridiculous and awful. And it, and it was horrible. And I noticed that Manchester City didn't have any face painters. So we went to work on the Monday because we worked together at an advertising agency at the time. And um, we talked about it. And I said, look, you know, at Manchester City, there's thousands of families going to watch the football. And the kids and the mums and the dads are painting their own kids' faces and it looks awful. Why don't we ask them if they will pay you to be a face painter? And she's like, well, that sounds like a good idea. And then she says, well, should we just send them an email? So we agreed to send them an email. Now, at this point... We decided that we had wanted a business, but we didn't have, know what it was going to be. And we hadn't have a business name. We didn't have a plan. We didn't have any money. We didn't even have an email account. I think we actually set up a Hotmail account to send this email. Um, we actually found out the name of the, uh, the marketing manager at Manchester City. In fact, I've just asked Lynn's before I came on here. Could she remember his name? And his name is Ian Howard. And we found his name. Now, I thought we Googled it, but we obviously didn't because it was 2003. So we must have yahooed it or... I don't know how we found it. We searched it or we asked Jeeves, Alan, we asked Jeeves, for those of you who can remember that one. And we found his name and we found his email address and we sent him an email from a Hotmail account that basically said, would you like some face painters for your next home match? And I think we even put kind regards, Linz and Katie. And that one email changed the course of our lives to this date. And that was in 2003. Because Ian Howard replied to that email within one minute and said, yes, please, we'll have 10. 
what else do you do? And he sent that back to our Hotmail account. And we danced about for about 10 minutes and then realized that he'd actually just ordered 10 face painters from us for the next home match. So here's the thing. This is how we sold our value because I'm off on my story. We agreed a price with him for each face painter that he was going to pay. And that price was £250 a face painter. And we agreed that he would pay within seven days of the match. We then went and found some of Lindsay's friends who also face painted at uh, these theme parks around the UK. And we agreed with each of these face painters that they were going to get £140 each. And we would pay them within 30 days of the day that we were going to do the job. We found nine face painters, including Lynn's, and the, the, the way that this went was that I had to face paint as well, and I couldn't face paint, and we, we did the day, and we, we, we did the face painting, and all these other face painters were fantastic, and they did all the faces, and mine were just, it was just awful and embarrassing, and children cried, and um, parents kind of threatened me a little bit. However, however, we got away with it. We actually got away with it. So we had nine great face painters and one actual car crash of a face painter being me. And I kind of sweated and, and, and stumbled all the way through it. But we, we did it. We got away from it. And Manchester City paid us immediately. They were really pleased with us. And then we actually paid all the painters immediately. So we charged £250 a painter and we paid out £140 a painter. So between Lindsay and I on that one Saturday from one email, we made over £1,000. And we didn't actually have to spend any money to make that money. So we sold the service. We sold our value before we created it. And that's how we started a business. And we realized that at that point that there was opportunity everywhere. Yeah. And what you had to do was ask. And yes, we asked once and we were very lucky with our first email. But really, that to me is about selling your value. That's the first time I've heard that story. And that is awesome, Casey. Very, very cool. Very inspiring. May I ask you, before you sent that first email, um, how long did it take you and Linz to, to say, yes, we're going to do this? And just to go ahead and type that simply out. Hey, we paint faces. Would you like us to do that for you, Manchester City? How did that go? What was the experience of you know, the nerves and saying, oh, can we even do this? Or how did you guys decide that, yes, we were going to make this ask? Um, well, it went quite, it, well, it was a Saturday. So I'd been to the football, we came back and I told her what I'd seen and there was an opportunity. I'm particularly good at finding opportunities for other people and when other people do the work rather than me. <laughs> I like great. to delegate the hard work. So I decided that she could go and face paint. Actually, in the end, it meant that I had to go too. And then we waited on the Sunday and we didn't, and there's a little bit of me that's a little bit, even though I like to follow the rules, and I've said that before, there's a bit of me that is a little gung-ho. And I just thought the worst thing that could happen was that A, he didn't reply, or B, said no. And that's all that could happen. And we had this chat, and we're like, oh, let's just give it a go. And you know, if I'm really honest, we didn't really think he would reply, especially we didn't know what we were doing. And we just thought we'd give it a go. Why not? We had nothing at all to lose. So on the Sunday, we decided to do it. And then we went, we both worked at the same ad agency and we did it the first thing in the morning. We did it before nine o'clock, before anybody got in and we just sent it really early. Simple as that. And he replied immediately and he told us afterwards, they were literally having the conversation in the office that they needed some face painters. The timing of our email was perfect. Which one of you got the email from Manchester United who, who opened that and how did you celebrate? Could you believe it? Was it? 
Like this can't be oh. real. Well, it was one email and it was to Manchester City. That's kind of an important thing for, for me, not to say Manchester United. Um, Excuse they are like sorry. enemy, Sean. They're the, the bloody pos- enemy. Ugly, ugly um, American. Ugly American. <laughs> so we sent it. I mean, it was one from one email account and it was came through to my computer. And we kind of, I was, I can see myself gesturing for it to come up and go, no, 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 no. <laughs> and they replied. They replied and we just kind of stared at the screen. And then we're just really, really excited. Look, after a few minutes, don't get me wrong, there was a little bit of panic. Oh, oh God. we got to really got to do this. To, we're going to do this. Yeah. Are we gonna, can we do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? Can we? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, be all right. Be all right. Yeah, yeah. Phone, yeah. phone, phone them. And we started there and then. We didn't do any work that day. And the people who were paying our salary, <laughs> we were just mainly too yeah. excited, distracted. Yeah. But yes, just- but sell your value. That really is the thing. It was the idea that they only paid, they paid £250 a painter and we paid the painters £140, which was the going rate for face painters. We just made this price up as well, by the way. We made that price up on the spot. We had no idea. And when they replied to that and agreed to that price, I mean, we were just in, we're invincible. <laughs> this is it. Congratulations on a awesome ask. Cheers, Sean. So this idea of selling your value. So I told my kind of, my experience of what it means to me when we started. I told that story to um, a class, when I say a class, it was at the pop-up business school in Maidstone. And the idea that you're taking the cash first before you start spending. And that, for me, is what it's all about. Um, and if you can take that little lesson right through your business for years, once you get your business going and you, 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 know, you do it more and more. But this is, this is what happened. Down in uh, Maidstone, which is in Kent, near London, a lady called Sonia came to see me. And she said that she would like to make lunch for the class. For the people. So we had about, about 40 or 50 people at that pop-up business school. Could she make the lunches? Because I, for those of you who haven't been to a pop-up business school event, we tend to, we are called the pop-up business school. So we pop up in unusual places. And we were in an empty shop unit in a shopping center, which I believe is a shopping mall or mall, as our US friends say it in the UK. So we're in a shopping center in an empty shop unit. So Sonia said, can I make lunch for people? So I was like, that, yeah, absolutely, because, yes, there's lots of lunch places out here, but, you know, I'm sure that the people in the room will, um, will want to support you doing that because her idea for a business was a kind of a healthy lunch or snack service for meetings and events. You know, when you go to events and meetings, it tends to be like, you know, not so healthy sandwiches and lots of chocolate chip cookies. It is for me anyway. And I tend to stuff myself with those. And she, she had an idea that actually she, can, she could bring along healthy, tasty, nutritious food that people could pay for. So she agreed to do that. And um, she had learned two options. You could have A or B for the food for the next day. And she said, do you think it's appropriate then that I take the money first? I was like, yes. Yes, Sonia, take the cash first. So it was five pounds for this lunch. Five pounds. It was a, it, you know, it's a substantial investment for people to spend five pounds on a lunch because you're in a shopping center where you can go and get the cheap kind of junk food a lot cheaper. So it's five pounds. So she took the orders. She stood up in front of everybody. She told people how she was going to make this food from scratch, the, the ingredients she was going to use. And she got loads of orders, I think 20 or 30 orders on the first day. And she took the cash. And then she took that cash and went to the supermarket and bought the ingredients. And then she went home and made the food. And the next day she came back and served the food. 
but she bought the ingredients for less than she'd taken, and that was her profit. So she didn't have to use her savings or borrow any money to buy the ingredients for the food. It is that simple. She'd convinced us all beforehand that this was going to be a great lunch. She told us the things that she was going to bring in and explained how it was going to taste. And we gave our cash and we trusted her with our cash. And she went away and then delivered. And every day she made the lunch for the pop-up business school. In fact, we went back to Mason a year later and she turned up every day and she again sold to the class again. And it was a great lunch. I had one it of those. Was. It was a super lunch. So I think those, those simple things, that simple idea of taking the cash first is this grand phrase of sell your value before you create it. Let me just add a little piece on the before you create it bit, because I think this is a really important piece. So many of the entrepreneurs I've met over the years spend weeks, months, years building a product, building a service in the isolation of their own home, and then they go out and try and sell it at the end without actually knowing if anyone wants it. This is what we're suggesting is the exact opposite is don't bother building it until you've sold it first. And that's actually the principle we used at the pop-up business school to do our first ever course. I didn't know if this would work. I had no idea. I just thought, let's go out and sell it. And Simon said, why don't we try selling it to housing associations, housing authorities? And I said, OK, I know one of those. So I booked an appointment. I went down to see the guy. His name was Michael Williams from Alliance Homes in Western Supermare. And I said, I've got this idea. I think I can run a course that will help your residents build businesses without going into debt. And he said, that sounds interesting, Alan. Send me a proposal. So I sent him a proposal. We negotiated. He bought the course. I asked for the money up front. Obviously, I was well trained. Uh, he paid up front. And then we're running the course six months later for him. When do you think we actually wrote the course? And I didn't write it until we'd sold it. I didn't actually write it till about a month beforehand. If it was up to my business partner, Simon, it would have been writing it the night before. He likes to go by the seat of his pants. But for me, I started writing it a month out. But there was no way I'm writing a two-week course with all the slides, all the material, before I know that someone actually wants it. So I wouldn't bother creating it or building it or making it perfect until you've sold it. Let me ask you guys this, Katie and uh, Alan. So there's a little bit of a, I would say, a fear, and it's not proper to ask for money before before you give somebody something or you give them a product or not. Have you guys run up against that in pop-up business school classes or with clients that you're working with? And what do you suggest to them when they come back with, uh, well, you can't do that or that's not how it works or I can't ask for money before I give somebody something? What would you guys say to somebody who said that to you? Um, well, I'd say, first of all, you can ask. You can ask and it's okay if they say no. Um, getting used to asking is a major, a big part of starting your business is the use to that not everyone's going to say yes or want to do business with you. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is this comes down to when I was mentioning about uh, Sonia, she stood up and she told us about the food and she started to um, gain trust. So we'll talk about this maybe in another one of the episodes of The Rebel Entrepreneur. We talk about trust and building trust, making friends with people, talking to people, 
forming relationships and rapport with people so they can start to trust you. Because look, you are going to deliver. Likelihood is you are passionate about, or hopefully you are passionate about your business and what you can do, whether you're making cakes or you're making food, whatever it is, you're good at what you do. You're going to keep to your word. So it's about convincing the other person that that's what you're going to do. And you can do that by making friends. You can do that by explaining what you're going to do. But some people will say no, and that's all right. So you just need to ask somebody else. I love that. I absolutely love what Casey says. And I actually add one extra bit and I go a little bit harder, which is you are daft if you don't ask for the money up front. And the example I give, we had a lady that started a cake business. She got an order for 100 cupcakes and we actually got a message from her saying, I'm sat in my kitchen. I got a 100 cupcakes that I have spent the money on making and the time. They're all sat on the side of the kitchen and the guy who ordered them isn't replying. What do I do? And she'd been ringing him. She'd messaged him. She got nothing back. And I said, well, my first question was, well, did you get the money up front? Did you get a deposit? She said, no. I said, well, he's got no reason to come and pick them up then. He's got no reason to follow through. He's not committed. And if people aren't willing to give you even a deposit up front, don't do business with them. Like they've got to have some kind of commitment to working with you. So I would say to you, the very least, get a deposit and you're daft if you don't. Love daft. <laughs> I think also known as what silly. What Alan's saying is stupid. <laughs> um, I, I think that's good too. And, and we're not going to assume as well that that, that person's a, a bad person or we don't know what can happen in life. You know, for example, with what Casey was saying, somebody might have ordered a plate of food and then that next morning, you know, they had a situation where their kid got sick or they had something else that was important as well that they had to do and they not did not intentionally plan to not come and pay for their food. Life happened. But that does not take away from the fact that that person put the time and spent the money to make that food. So what I like to refer to it is you lock your profit in and you get that money up front. So regardless what happens out in the world, mistakes are made, situations come up, then you still get paid for the value that you provided. Absolutely. So look, there's the five ways to start a business for free. Number one, what can you get for free? Number two, how can you borrow stuff? Number three, what can you barter for or trade for? Number four, what can you sell? Number five, how can you sell your value before you create it and get that money up in front and use a customer's money to build the business rather than debt? Those are the five ways to start for free. KC, Sean, what I'd love to have is do you have any closing words for the audience about why they should start a business for free or what you'd like them to do next? Just really recapping on what we've said, the term I use is Start from the floorboards up. Start from the absolute minimum of what you need. I'm used to writing shopping lists. Um, even when I'm just doing my, you know, shopping at home, you write a list of the things that you need. When you're, you're moving house or any sort of big projects in your, in your life, there's a, a list of things that you need to buy. And we, we, I'm conditioned to buying stuff. Write down what you need. And then right next to it, what you're going to write down is how little or get to a zero of what you're going to spend. 
and challenge yourself to spend as little as possible to start with the absolute bare minimum of the stuff that you need. Now, you know, the business that I started, the business Lindsay and I started was the face painting. So we were a service. So we didn't need any equipment. I realized that. But it's looking at what you want to do, where your passion is, the business you want to start. What's the absolute minimum? What are the bare bones of what you need? And then going through that list, those five things and applying it in the most creative, unusual ways as you possibly can. And asking people, asking your friends, asking your family, those the supportive people in your life who want you to do well, how can you get this stuff for free? And who can they ask? And reach out to your network, who in your phone book, who out of your close friends and family can help you with this and start to ask and start to talk about it. I would say three things, Alan, with all the five situations you brought up, getting something for free, borrowing, bartering, selling your value before you create it and selling your unused stuff. Ask with confidence, add value to that person that you're dealing with and then take action. I love that. Absolutely love that. Sean, KC, thank you for helping us with the episode and helping people work out how they can get going for free. We're planning a future episode where people give us their ideas about what business they want to start and then we'll generate ways they can build that business for free. So we actually have a voicemail page. So if you go to choosefi.com forward slash rebel, you can find the page for the website and there you can leave us a voicemail. Tell us what business you want to start for free and we will give you ideas and suggestions of how to do it. Thank you for tuning in. It's been great. Casey, Sean, thank you. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to episode two of the Rebel Entrepreneur. We have got so much more coming up for you. In episode three, we'll be speaking to Katie and Andrew from Time Trap about how they got a free building and got going without debt. Episode four, we've got a startup short story from Sean Jenkins of Benefit Focus. That is an incredible story about a multi-billion pound business and how it got going. Episode five is all about passion. And is passion enough for your business to get going? Episode six, we've got Matt Eastley, who's all about building businesses online. And he's built a phenomenal woodwork YouTube channel. And we've got those examples there. And the list of episodes rolls on from there for season one. I'm so excited that you've chosen to join us on this journey in building businesses. And I don't really care whether you've never started a business and you've got an idea, whether you've got a business that's already going and you want to grow it, or whether you are thinking about what to do in retirement and you want to do something meaningful. We just want to help you get going on your journey. Now, you can also come along to the Pop-Up Business School events. They are always and will always be free. They are two week long events that help you start up with nothing. And they're actually what this podcast is based upon. If you want to find out more about where they are around the world, have a look at popupbusinessschool.co.uk forward slash events. And whatever you do, break the rules, get out there and make money doing something you love. You've been listening to Rebel Entrepreneur with Alan Donegan. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get new, fresh episodes as soon as they've launched. To stay up to date with the rebellion, visit choosefi.com slash rebel. Thanks for joining the rebellion. <laughs>